The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 28, a Psalm of David. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands, render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 16. This is verses 9 through 12. It's a short sermon today. It's one of the shortest I've done since we were on the beach. But uh, it's only a few verses, and 90% of the information has been in other sermons on this particular subject. And so I am just giving you an overview of what's going on, and uh, you'll be home having lunch in no time. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. I'm always giddy about the thought of the rapture except for one and only one reason. No, it's not about an upcoming wedding, a scheduled cruise, a retirement, or coming inheritance. It's not about my next anniversary. Sorry, Hidako. <laughs> or the thought of getting a new car. Now, you know, I practice these out loud eight times. And when I was practicing this sermon, I had to kind of be quiet there so she wouldn't hear what I was saying. <laughs> Or the thought of getting a new car. The old pickup suits me just fine. There is literally nothing that I do from day to day, nor anything that is yet ahead of me that I can experience or possess that at all makes me think I really want to be here for that. But there is something that I have done that keeps me from wanting to be raptured. Something I have done, not something I want to do. Our friend Sergio has memorized pretty much every password I have. He can access my computer and my life at any given moment to bail me out of a crisis, to print something off with my printer without asking permission. How dare he? 
or to pretend he is me in order to send himself an email that he then sends back to me with a response to something I never wrote. And if you think I'm kidding, he did this to me this week. And so I took him to this sermon and I showed him what I had typed 10 weeks earlier. And I said, this is us. We are kids like that. But from time to time, I send him the same email that involves this ability of his life, of his, to access my life. Sergio, if something happens to me, please be sure the sermons are read to the church. He knows where they are, and it is his obligation to get them printed for either someone here or for him personally to read to the church. And to me, it's ironic that what happened this week almost meant that that was to happen. That is literally the only thing that I will wish had been presented before the rapture. But as long as I keep typing new sermons, there will always be a time that a certain number of sermons will go unread, not heard by anyone. That is assuming, of course, that Sergio actually makes the rapture too. (laughs) It is for this reason that I wouldn't mind punching my ticket a couple months before the rapture, if it could be planned that way. It is the word of God, and apart from seeing the face of the Lord with my own two eyes, it is all that I care about in any measure. Everything else is temporary, and it will come to an end, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and I just want my part of analyzing it available for those who are left behind. When I sit down to type on Monday morning, it is a point of rejoicing because it is a blessing from the Lord that I can do so. Our text verse comes from Ephesians 1. It's verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The passage today tells the people to rejoice before the Lord, and that rejoicing is to be an acknowledgement of how the Lord God had blessed them. The temporal blessings of Israel are mere shadows and types of the spiritual blessings found in the church. Where Israel celebrated the Passover with a lamb, we celebrate it with the lamb. Where Israel celebrated firstfruits with a sheaf of the first harvest of grain, we celebrate it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Where Israel celebrated the Feast of Weeks with a new grain offering to the Lord, we celebrate it with, well, we'll go through the verses and remind ourselves of some of the typology already seen in the past sermons concerning this feast. So there's no need to spoil what lies ahead during the introduction. But the fact is that every material blessing of these feasts for Israel is realized in spiritual blessings for the church. And so, how can we not rejoice? We were sinners and Christ died for our sins. We were in bondage and Christ has set us free. We were without the Spirit and now we are reconnected to God because of the Spirit. What is there not to rejoice about when we consider where we stand in relation to where we were? Typing these sermons is a point of rejoicing because they analyze the word of the Lord from a perspective that Israel had no idea about. To them, they were words of law. To us, they are words of grace. To them, they spoke of condemnation. To us, they speak of salvation. 
When one sees Christ Jesus and what is presented, it goes from a temporal blessing to a spiritual blessing. Yes, the law was a blessing to them because it unified them and kept them as a people, but it could not bring them life except as it was finally fulfilled in Christ. To us, it is life because Jesus embodies what it presents. Let us consider this and rejoice before the Lord God all our days. And if I die before the rapture, don't feel bad even one bit. It will be its own blessing to me and a grace from God. But the rapture is still the best deal of all. We'll leave such things in the Lord's hands and continue on awaiting whatever he determines for each of us. Until then, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a few thoughts for you today. The first is the tribute of a free will offering. It's verses 9 and 10. The feast now to be described was first introduced in Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17, with the introduction of the three annual pilgrim feasts. Here's what it said there. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. That is the feast that we're looking at right now. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. This was repeated in Exodus 34:22, where it is called the Feast of Weeks. After that, it was detailed in the listing of the eight feasts of the Lord that will be cited in a few minutes. It was again referred to in Numbers 28, which provided details concerning the offerings to be made to the Lord during the feast. Moses is repeating the requirement, and he will build upon it in these few short verses. The main ideas to be conveyed here are in relation to the people's responsibilities during the feast. Remembering that Christ is the fulfillment of the typology found in these feasts, there is to be a connection to his people and what he has done. That is the purpose of the symbolism of these three pilgrim feasts. They take what Christ has done and then deal with the responsibility of those who participate in what was fulfilled in him. What Israel, the people did under the law, as is recorded in these verses, is to be lived out by the people of the church because of our relationship to what Jesus did. The first of these pilgrim feasts was recorded and looked over last week, meaning Passover, which is immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Christ is the Passover lamb, and we are to live our lives in sinless holiness before God represented by the seven days of having no leaven in the territory. Obviously, none of us are sinless in our conduct, but because of the non-imputation of sin for those who have entered the new covenant, that's 2 Corinthians 5.19, in case you wanted to know, we are deemed, deemed as sinless before God. When one is under law, the imputation of sin is the result. However, Paul repeatedly conveys the thought that believers in Christ are not under law, but we are rather under grace. Without law, sin is not imputed. That is the idea which was typologically lived out by Israel when the yeast was purged from the land during that feast. The next pilgrim feast, that of weeks, will now present another typological anticipation. 
What Israel did under the law anticipates what we are to do under grace. What Christ did in fulfillment of the symbolism, we are now to participate in with a reality. Where the typology was only shadow, we now possess the substance. With that, we begin with verse 9. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. The words here and in the next clause follow after Leviticus 23, where the Feast of Weeks is first described. Here's what it said there. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. It is from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That was clearly identified in the Feasts of the Lord sermons to be a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as was seen in the earlier Leviticus 23 verses dealing with the Feast of Firstfruits. Christ's resurrection was on a Sunday, the first day of the week, after the Sabbath. The waving of the sheaf of the wave offering looked forward to the presentation of Christ Jesus alive and well before the Father. It is from this starting point that a set counting was to take place. As it says here, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. That is in accord with the counting of Leviticus 23, of which Moses is now restating for the people who are about to cross over the Jordan and enter the land of promise. And so he says, verse 9 going on, begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Mehachel chermesh bakama tachel lispor shiva shavuot. From begin sickle in the standing, begin to count seven weeks. Here we have a new word, chermesh meaning a sickle. It comes from haram, which is the act of devoting something to God through destruction, exterminating, and so on. This word will be found only here and then again in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. It is interesting that the root signifies something devoted to God, and that is exactly what happens to the sheaf of the first fruits. Though the word is usually taken in a negative context, it can be positive as well, such as in Leviticus 27, verse 28, where it said, Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. This sheaf was solely devoted as a presentation to the Lord, just as the work of Jesus in destroying sin and annulling the law is solely set apart and dedicated to the Lord. The sickle, as a tool of devotion, anticipates what happens to that which is cut down. Christ was cut down for the utter destruction of sin, but he was raised as an acceptable offering before the Lord because he had no sin of his own. The idea here of the first fruits as an offering before the Lord was precisely detailed in Leviticus 23, 10 through 14. There it said, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits, think of Jesus Christ while I'm reading this, of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. Now the sheaf has been cut down. It's dead, right? But what's happening? He's waving it before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one fourth of a hen, 
You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. As I just said, the sheaf of the first fruits, which Moses is alluding to here again, is a picture of Christ in his resurrection. Though he was cut down, he was presented alive before the Father, symbolized by the waving of the sheaf before the Lord by the priest. As was seen during that sermon, the word translated as wave is nuf. It gives the sense of to quiver. Because of the motion of it vibrating up and down or rocking to and fro, Elsewhere, the word is translated as to wave or to beckon or to sprinkle or to rub or to saw and so on. Each of these implies motion and vibrancy. In this was seen a picture of Christ, the true high priest, causing this preeminent sheaf to be vibrant before the Lord, just as occurred in the resurrection on the day after the Sabbath. It was on a Sunday Christ came back to life, his life that was cut down was reanimated. The fulfillment of that symbolism is found in Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Amen. The background information is necessary to understand the timeline of what Moses is now referring to in Deuteronomy. From that day, meaning the day of the presentation of this sheaf of the first fruits, Seven weeks are counted off. Verse 10, then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God. In this clause, the word Chag or pilgrim feast is used. It comes from Chagag, which signifies to make a pilgrimage or a pilgrim feast. That in turn comes from a primitive root signifying to move in a circle. Thus, one thinks of being giddy and celebrating. When this term is used, it signifies the people's part of what the Lord has initiated. In other words, the Lord was the first of the resurrection and thus the first of the church. He is emblematic of all others in the church who follow after him. This hog or pilgrim feast is given as an anticipatory type to the people of the Lord whose work made the feast possible. As far as the dating, the seven weeks after the feast of first fruits means one arrives at the 50th day. We just read that from Leviticus 23, but let's read it once again. And you shall count for yourselves from that day after the Sabbath on Sunday, he was resurrected on Sunday, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. The day after the Sabbath means a Sunday. It is the first day of the week. 50 days after the first fruits of Israel equates to 50 days after the resurrection of Christ Jesus. As a point of correction of doctrine, which should always be remembered when discussing these things, is that these words of Leviticus 23, along with the words of Exodus and elsewhere, and which form the basis for the timeline of the work of the Lord, clearly indicate that Christ, the Passover lamb, was crucified on the 14th of the month and raised on the 16th of the first month. It said there in Exodus 12, 6, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And then in Leviticus 23, 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, which would be the 16th, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Christ was crucified on a Friday and resurrected on a Sunday. This is evidenced in the Old Testament typology 
and it is clearly revealed in the New Testament. For reference, a detailed timeline of this will be included at the end of this sermon as posted to the Superior Word website to substantiate this. And the reason why I do this, I've done this in several other sermons, is because people argue that Christ was crucified on a Thursday or on a Wednesday, and that is incorrect. There is a very set timeline. The wording in the New Testament is very precise. You cannot miss it once you've read the analysis. People will take verses out of context, such as three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, and they misunderstand what Christ is saying. I will include this for you at the end of the sermon on the Superior Word website, and if anybody wants it emailed to them, I can do that, but I'd rather have you just go to the Superior Word website, look at this sermon, go down to the bottom, and all the information you could ever want and more is right there. For now, the period of 50 days after the first fruits is directly equated to 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, as it says in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost, Pentecost meaning 50 days, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, before I go on with this, remember everything that happened in Christ's life was detailed in these feasts of the Lord. It's all right there waiting for Israel to understand what they have missed for 2,000 years. If you want to know what's going on in the new, you need to understand the old. Verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, Pentecost, the day which the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers, thus establishing the church, is the fulfillment of the presentation of the new grain offering to the Lord. The shadow is fulfilled in the substance. The type is realized in the reality. With the work of the Lord fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit, the typology of Israel's pilgrim feast is then applied to the reality which is to be lived out by those in the church. It should be noted, however, that of these three pilgrim feasts, this is the only one that does not give a time frame for how long the feast is to be held. Passover is one plus seven, meaning Passover and then seven days of the feast. On the first and last days, there were sacred assemblies. Tabernacles is seven plus one, meaning an eighth day closing affixed to the feast. In Numbers 28, the Feast of Weeks only records offerings for one day, the day of first fruits. If the people were there longer, the Bible says nothing of that. The reason for this seems clear. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer once, only once. Unlike unleavened bread, which looks to believers living sinlessly before the Lord, and like tabernacles that looks to our living out our lives working in the harvest field before the Lord, weeks looks to the time when the believer is sealed with the Spirit. It is a one-time and for all-time event in the believer's life. As a short insert to the thought of what occurred at Pentecost, the typology that anticipated the Lord's work for his people, and that of how the people are to live out their lives in the Lord reveals the false teaching known as hyperdispensationalism. It is a heretical doctrine which says that there are two Gospels and that the church did not start until Paul was commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. If the teachers of this false doctrine understood the typology presented in the Old Testament, they would not make this fundamental error in thinking. Despite this, the presentation of these pilgrim feasts anticipates those 
who are truly of the church, meaning saved believers in Jesus Christ. For Israel, at the time of the feast, Moses continues the thought of keeping the feast to the Lord. Verse 10 going on, with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand. Misat nidbat yadecha, tribute, free will offering, your hand. There's no article before the word tribute, as if it is understood what is being referred to. Further, the word misa, or tribute, is found only here in this one verse in the whole Bible. It is from masas, meaning to dissolve or melt. Thus it speaks of abundance or giving liberally. What is of note in this is that it does not say what is done with the tribute. One can assume that it's presented to the priests, but that is only an assumption. This is perplexing because everything in the law is so precisely and clearly defined. As this is a free will offering, it cannot be speaking of the mandatory offerings that are listed in Leviticus 23 and in Numbers 28 that are prescribed for the feast. The word nedevah, or free will offering, generally speaks of an offering to the Lord. But one would think, like in such cases, it would then say, to the Lord. Again, it does not. The word is used elsewhere when speaking of the Lord loving freely, such as in Hosea 14.4, or making an offering of the mouth, such as in Psalm 119.108, and so on. Nothing concerning the offering, meaning type or amount, is defined, and what is to be done with it is left undefined. All that is noted is, verse 10 continues, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. The entire thought of this verse and how it points in type to a New Testament truth is surely summed up in these words. Unlike all of the other mandatory prescriptions of the law, each pointing to Christ in some way or another, this points to the blessing from the Lord, and it is completely voluntary, without set limit and without set type. It is what Paul lays out in several places in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. No set limit, no set type. 2 Corinthians 9, therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Before I go on, what is a grudging obligation that people always try to impose on people in the church? Tithing. Tithing pictures Christ. That's why we don't tithe anymore. That is why it is not a New Testament principle, because it pictured Christ. This is an offering. There is no set type. There is no set amount or anything else to picture our obligation. Everybody seeing this, how wonderful the word is? But I say this, he who spares sowingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you have to tithe, I guarantee you, you're not a cheerful giver. You may say you are, but you're not. From 2 Corinthians 9 again, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what did it just say there? As the Lord your God blesses 
you. It's being tied together purposefully to show us that tithing is not something we're supposed to be talking about in New Testament churches. The Corinthians had made a free will offering from their liberality. There was no condition set upon it. There was no amount prescribed, and there was no type mandated. Paul's only desire was to see that what had been vowed would, in fact, be prepared and presented accordingly. And that's what's being pictured here, a nedeva, or a free will offering. Okay, this sets the pattern for all other giving within the church. It is to be voluntary of whatever amount is decided upon solely by the giver and in whatever amount, manner, and type the giver decides is right. And it is to be just as Moses says to the individual Israelite now, as the Lord your God blesses you. If you are having trouble in your life, if you can't pay your bills, why would you feel obligated to give something to a church when you can't even pay your own bills? The Lord will take care of you, and then when you're taken care of, think about giving to the church or your favorite missionary. Don't be pushed by pastors on TV, televangelists, and churches that you may attend that tell you you need to give. That is contrary to Scripture. You give when you can and what you want to give. The type in Israel is only a shadow of the substance for the church. It is the Lord who is blessed, and thus each individual is to determine what that blessing means to him. Everything is to be in relation to the gratefulness of the believer for what the Lord has done in his life. With that in mind, and with that thought upon the heart, Moses will continue when we get to verse 11. For now, rejoice before the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. You have been redeemed. What could possibly rob your joy? Rejoice before the Lord. Lift up your cheerful voice. Let it be that shouts of thanks and praise you willfully employ. The Lord has given you of his spirit, and for that rejoice. He has sealed you for the glorious coming day. To himself he will gather his people, so lift up your voice, and let all of the Lord's redeemed jubilantly say, We will rejoice in our God while we yet live. We will raise our hands and our voices to him forevermore. To him eternal praises we shall give when he carries us across to the other shore. O great and glorious Lord, in you we shall rejoice. To you, O mighty Savior, we shall forever raise our voice. Our second thought today, be careful to observe these statutes. It's verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This is now the fifth of nine times the word rejoice is to be found in the book of Deuteronomy. You probably didn't think it was in there once because it's so hard to read. I understand that. I read Deuteronomy and you go, oh my gosh. And yet he's telling the people to rejoice. It is a positive command. The people are not to be unhappy or miserable. Rather, they are to actively rejoice before the Lord. As the Feast of Weeks anticipates the giving of the Holy Spirit, and because it is also a pilgrim feast, it is typical of life in Christ, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Because of this, the imperative to rejoice is obvious, and it is abundantly stated in various ways in the New Testament. Most especially, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord in Philippians 3. He says, rejoice in Christ Jesus in Philippians 3 again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice, Philippians chapter 4, and rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16. These and other examples found in abundance in the epistles are given as prescriptions to those of the church 
because of the blessings of the Lord upon them, just as the people of Israel were to rejoice because of the blessings of the Lord upon them. When I use the word prescriptions, that means you are ordered to do it. Paul is prescribing for you to rejoice. Everybody be happy. Don't let the world bring you down. Rejoice always, he says. Again, I will say, rejoice. Those are prescriptions. They're not, I suggest you do this. Be happy. Christ has died for your sins. You are going to heaven. If you're having a miserable day, forget about it. Fix your eyes on Jesus and rejoice. The typology of the old leads directly to the fulfillment of it in the new. For those in the church, the words of our text verse today concerning every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ are meant for every saved believer. And the knowledge of them is to be shared with every person that we can share them with. For Israel, rejoicing in the temporal blessings was not just for the man of the house, but for, verse 11 continues, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you. When I lived in Japan, I climbed Mount Fuji one night. The goal for those who climbed was to leave at evening and make it to the top by sunrise. And I tell you, I was bushed by two o'clock in the morning and I slept under a rock for a while. It is a tough climb for a guy like me. Some people can do it, no problem. In this, you will see innumerable torches and lamps being carried up the various paths that crisscrossed the side of the mountain. If you drove by it on a highway at night, which we did at times, the same sight could be seen for vast distances, thousands and thousands of individual lights zigzagging up towards the summit. It's a beautiful sight to see. If one has seen the movie Field of Dreams, the very ending of the movie had something similar, a line of cars with their lights on stretching back for miles and miles that were heading to the field at night. That's what it looks like when you drive by Mount Fuji in the summer at night. The words of Moses in this verse are a matter of law. None were to be excluded. It is incorrect to say that only the men were required to attend the three annual pilgrim feasts. Rather, all the men were to go, and they were to be accompanied by all of these categories. Like Mount Fuji, Israel would have looked like an ant farm, as every path, every road, and every highway was filled with people heading to the place where the Lord God resided. Some walked, some rode animals, and some may have been carried, but all were heading to one specific location in order to feast and to rejoice. It should be noted that the wife is notably missing, isn't she? She's not mentioned in this list. Moses says, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, he included everybody, but nothing is said of the wife. What seems obvious is that this is not saying that the wives were to stay home and take care of the pets. Rather, it is a way of acknowledging her importance within the household. It takes us back to the very beginning of man's time on earth. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Come here, Hedico. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Rather than being an oversight by Moses, it appears he is reiterating the fact that the man and his wife are one. In mentioning him, she is implicitly mentioned as well. Therefore, there is no reason to include her, thank you, in the list. 
It would be unthinkable for him to observe the feast without her. Thus all were to attend. Verse 11, I hope I didn't embarrass you. That's my beautiful wife. Verse 11 continues, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. These words have been stated again and again. The people were to gather in the presence of the Lord right where he resided, and they were to rejoice and have a feast, even to the point of being giddy. It speaks of unity of worship. This is the type, the anti-type is first seen in Jesus' words of John chapter 4. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is supposed to be the case in order to fulfill the typology is that Christians are to rejoice wherever they are. As the nation saw Israel rejoicing before the Lord in Israel, so the nations should see the people of the church doing so before the Lord at any place they currently are standing. I understand that people have difficult times. I understand sickness. I understand going to the emergency room. There are times where you don't feel like rejoicing. But I tell you, when I woke back up, the first thing I thought was, oh, I'm still here. (laughs) We should be rejoicing in the thought that we are going to go be with Jesus any moment. We're a heartbeat away from that. And we should rejoice and let everybody see that joy. Even in our times of trial and family disputes and so on, rejoice. What Israel experienced for a week at a time, the church is to experience in a fuller way from moment to moment. We have been redeemed. How can we do anything but rejoice? As he next says, verse 12, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. As he has done time and time and time again in Deuteronomy, Moses again reminds the people of where they came from and what that meant while they were there. They were slaves. They are now the Lord's people. They were in Egypt, double distress, and now they are on the shores of the Jordan, free from Pharaoh and from their harsh taskmasters. Because of this, the act of remembering, as stated here, is probably twofold. First, it is to spur the people on to generosity in the tribute offering mentioned earlier, and also toward those who came together with them on the pilgrim feast. They were once in bondage, and so now they were to remember those who currently had less than they did. And secondly, The purpose of the pilgrim feasts was to have them experience the joy of delighting in the abundance of the Lord. In Egypt, they suffered and had lack. In Canaan, they could expect prosperity and abundance. In Egypt, they were slaves. In Canaan, they were property owners. Because of these truths, the contrast was to be remembered by them so that they would always be grateful for what they did have. They were never to focus on what they didn't have, but they were to rather be grateful for what they possessed. And what they possessed and were blessed with was a result of the covenant that they agreed to. Therefore, verse 12 finishes with, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. After all of the words of blessing, abundance, and rejoicing, these words serve as a reminder and even a warning. Israel had what they had because the Lord gave it to them. They had nothing substantial to speak of before he did. Israel was where they were because the Lord had brought them out from where they previously were. They could not save themselves, and without his hand of intervention, they would still be where they were. Israel had covenanted with the Lord, and in that covenant, they had agreed to the stipulations. What they possessed and where they were to be in Canaan was a result of that agreement. If the agreement was made based on obedience, and it was, 
then disobedience to it would incur the opposite of the blessing. That was previously laid out, and Moses was telling them now that they were to carefully observe the stipulations in order to remain in that state of abundance, blessing, and the ability to rejoice. Should they fail, they could expect it to end. In this, one can see the contrast and the similarities between the type and the antitype. When Israel was obedient to the covenant they agreed to, they would receive the temporal blessings. When we receive the work of the Lord, we receive the spiritual blessings. Israel was freed from physical bondage, but they were brought into a spiritual bondage, being servants to the law. We are the Lord's freed men from spiritual bondage, and we are brought into being the Lord's slaves to righteousness. When Israel was not obedient to the words of the law, they received temporal judgments, but they were never cast off permanently from the Lord. When we fail to live out our lives in accord with the obligations expected of us, we too can expect temporal judgments, but the Lord has promised to never cast us off permanently. Israel was promised earthly reward. We are promised heavenly reward. Israel is a nation and a culture set apart from the world. The church is a body taken out of the world. There are differences and there are similarities, but both reflect the workings of God in Christ, leading all to anticipate him and to glory in what God has done through him for us. Let us remember this as we contemplate the Feast of Weeks and what it signifies in us. We have been given the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. In this, we have been sealed for the day of redemption as the Lord's purchased possession. It isn't a day that might come. It is a day that is coming. We weren't saved in order to fight our way to the end. Rather, Christ did the fighting and he prevailed. There is no struggling to attain the promise. Rather, in him, we are those who have prevailed. We have received the promise. And so remember this. When life is beating you up, when it seems your prayers are not being heard, when you are sick, when you're in pain, when you're agonizing over circumstances, or even facing the end of your physical existence, remember this. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. They are ours with a guarantee, and they will never be taken away from us. Cling to this, and even in the times of greatest distress, even in those times, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. Jesus Christ did the work. He paid the penalty for you, and he died for the forgiveness of your sins. And he did this under the law of Moses, God's standard. God gave Israel the standard, and he said, the man who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5. And the record goes from that time on, from the time of giving that law all the way through the Old Testament that nobody was able to do those things. Even the great prophet Elijah, who was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, did not do the things of the law. He failed the Lord at times. He took his eyes off of the prize. He had a pity party one time, and the Lord says, I'm going to take you with me somewhere else, and you're going to be replaced by another prophet. Okay, and he's coming back. He will be a witness to the world, and then he will die in fulfillment of the prophecies that are given about him. But until that time, and from that time, all the way through the Old Testament, nobody did the things of the law. But Christ came born under the law, born without sin because his father is God, no sin transmitted to him because sin is transmitted from father to child. And so he's born without sin. He lived under the law without ever violating God's standard. He never sinned. And so now he's not only qualified to take away sin, he's capable of taking away sin. 
and then he gave his life up in exchange for our sin. He was crucified. He took the punishment and the pain, and he was buried, and he came out of the grave proving that he had no sin of his own, because if he did, he'd still be in that grave, and also proving that your sin is gone, because when he died, he died for your sin, but he came out of the grave. No sin is involved in that process, and so your sin is gone. It is under the blood of Christ. It is gone forever, if you will simply believe the simple message of salvation. Please accept what Christ has done. All pictured, man, 1,500 years before his coming. It was all given to them so that we wouldn't miss the typology. It's all right there. If people would just pick up the Old Testament and read it and just say, I'm going to find Jesus in this, they will find Jesus in it because it's all about him. Call on Christ. Be reconciled to God through him. Do it today, please. Our closing verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 22 and 23. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Stay slaves of righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's where we want our allegiances to be. Next week is Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 22. Hey, Ma, why is everyone building little shackles? <laughs> It's entitled, Observe the Feast of Tabernacles. That'll be our 51st Deuteronomy sermon. Not shackles on your arms, shackles that you sleep in. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I've got a very short poem for you today, only four verses. But before we give that, I've got a question. Be careful not to blurt out too quickly because I'm going to say the word Greek. So listen. The shortest verse in the Greek New Testament was quoted during this sermon. What is it? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. I said in the Greek. That's English. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And I quoted it in this sermon. Pantote charete. Rejoice always. Never forget that. Jesus is a lot longer. Jesus wept. It's a lot longer. It's a very long word. Jesus wept. But in the Greek New Testament, the shortest is rejoice always. Now you know. Okay, nobody gets a Maserati today. I'm sorry. It's okay. Oh, by the way, I. you know what? Ron won the penny counting contest yesterday. He's been coming out to the projects for, what, 17 years now? He's never won. No, not really. He's been coming for, we have a, a contest when we go out to the projects. People just throw money away. They're very, they, they don't earn it, so they don't care about it. And every week, we've been doing this now for 15 years. Never missed a Saturday, ever. And we walk the same route every Saturday for 15 years, and we will find yesterday 39 coins, okay? You just, there's money everywhere. So we have a contest. Who's going to find the most? Ron won. First time. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, here we go. Observe the Feast of Tabernacles. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks as I explain from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute, so you shall do, of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter also, your male servant and your female servant, 
The Levite who is within your gates shall also go. The stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you all side by side at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. None shall be skipped. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings that are found in Christ Jesus. We thank you that he is our Passover lamb. We thank you that we can worship you without the leaven of insincerity and wickedness any longer because of what he has done. And we thank you that he was raised again from the dead, the chief of the first fruits, emblematic of the whole harvest to come. And we thank you for the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which proves that that is true. We thank you for that. We know it's true. Your word says it. And so we cling to that promise, waiting for our day of final redemption. May that day be soon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.